Hello, my name is Bill Roberts, and welcome to another CART.ca podcast. With me today is Valerie Creighton, President and CEO of the Canada Media Fund, and sometimes known as just the CMF, I think. Valerie is widely recognized as an innovative and outstanding leader in our arts, culture, and media sector, and is credited with re-energizing some of Canada's most important organizations in this category over the last 35 plus years. That's impossible. You must have started when you were like three. Oh no, Bill, I'll be 70 in fall and I can hardly wait. <laughs> Welcome to cart.ca, Valerie. Thank you for having me. Valerie, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your personal journey to the helm of the CMF, please? Sure. Well, I grew up in Saskatchewan and I went to the U of R and uh, did University theater, of Regina. University of Regina and did a theater. I think it was the University of Saskatchewan still then, and then the uni- that transition happened. But anyway, I did a degree in fine arts and then went off to audition for a theater school in England and got into the Drama Studio of London. I actually got into RADA, the big one, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, after a very bizarre audition where they were eating cucumber sandwiches, and I actually stopped in the middle of my audition and told them I would wait till they were finished, right? I guess it's something you just don't do in that environment. But anyway, I did get accepted, but they wanted all three years of the program paid up front, and I wasn't in a position to do that. I got into the drama studio, which was actually better because I'd done the four-year degree, and that was kind of like almost like a finishing school in theater. It was a fantastic experience run by Peter Layton. So I came home to Canada and Decided in my ambition I was going to do a cross-country audition tour, which I did. And it was extremely interesting what I learned about theatre, you know, in the country of Canada through that time. And I got home to Saskatchewan, helped my dad take off the crop that fall. And I got thinking about, I don't know if I want to do another another production of Guys and Dolls. I didn't know really where I wanted to go after that. So as you sometimes do in life, I met a man, started farming, had two kids, and there was an organization called the um, Saskatchewan Drama Association for kids in high school. So I ended up working for them as a volunteer, then ended up getting hired, then ended up really getting my feet back into that world, took the kids to Stratford, you know, all that stuff. Oh, it led to some work freelance. And then it was 25th Street Theatre came along. I'd hired Tom Bentley Fisher as the adjudicator for the drama festival for the Drama Association. And we hit it off and he asked me to come and manage 25th. And really, I went to Saskatoon. It was at a difficult time in my personal life. I had two very small children, was a single mother. My son had leukemia at the time, had been just diagnosed. But off we went to Saskatoon. And the theatre was in very bad shape. There was no money. Canada Council and the Saskatchewan Arts Board had pulled the grants. The tech director stole all the lights because he hadn't been paid for a year. There was no audience, but critical acclaim for everything Tom did. So it was a real rebuilding exercise, big deficit. And after a year, we cleaned up the deficit, got all the subscribers back, got the tech director and the lights back and had a very successful season. So I was there for quite a few years. And I think I took that job because... In my life, Bill, I've become a fixer. Like it's an organization's in trouble and I go in and clean it up and fix it. I don't know where I learned that. From my mother, I guess, this Russian-German background or something. I don't know. Ukrainian, I'm a whole mix of that. But I, I like to do that. I like to work with organizations to take them where they can go. So after 25th, of course, you got very involved with the government in those days because of what was happening in Saskatchewan. And there was the status of the artist legislation 
And I got asked to apply for a job in government and took the head of the art section there for a while. And that's where we did some pretty good work for artists and the community in Saskatchewan, you know, structurally. The Arts Board, Saskatchewan Arts Board came up, oldest agency in the world next to the British Arts Council, the National Arts Foundation or Arts, whatever it's called in the U.S., was modeled after the Saskatchewan Arts Board. So I ran that for 11 or 12 years. It stayed too long, actually. You kind of get to the point where you become very territorial Mm. about things and protective, and you're never all that good in your job when you get to that point. So I uh, left there, worked freelance in the film industry for a while, doing public relations and kits and all that stuff. And then that led to them asking me to come to SAS Film to put, again, my finger in the hole of the dike that was flooding at the time. And we revamped it. And I said, would you please get on with the hiring? Because I'd like to get on with my life. By the time they got around to it, it was about a year and a half. And I was really starting to enjoy the work. And we had done some great stuff. And the soundstage was being built. So I applied. And I didn't, it was the only job I'd actually applied for that, you know, I hadn't been asked to come and do. I applied, I worked really hard, and it came down to me and a broadcaster from Toronto. I hope that wasn't you at the time. I mean, it might have been, but... It wasn't. And, it was Saskatchewan. Yeah, I got the job, and then I was there right, really right, right until the Canadian Television Fund, and which turned into the CMF, came to my door, and I turned it down and did the interview, and it was great. You know, all the powerful people in, in our sector were around the table. I, I won't name names, but very tough crowd. You know, you're intimidated when you come into something like that. And I had not been in the broadcast sector, but I was just frank and honest. And we got into this really interesting debate about whether public money could make good TV. I said, of course it can make good TV. But you guys have the rules tied down so tightly in this sector that between the production community and the broadcast community, there's not a lot of creativity because they have to answer to so many masters. So finally, I finally said, I I don't even know why I'm here. Like, I know nothing about broadcast television. I'm a feature film girl at heart. So I thought that's over when I walked out of the room. Turned out not to be the case. And Mm. here we are today. I've been at the Television Fund combined, Canada Media Fund. I'm just in my 16th year. Wow. And you've been recognized, I mean, you know this, by your peers everywhere, but also with some pretty impressive awards. Order of Canada. I saw that pin on your lapel. It's the nice looking pin. Hey, you know what? I got that in 2019, and we had the investiture scheduled, and then COVID hit. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually getting invested this coming Friday. You've got another one that I like the name of, Honorary Maverick Award. I thought that was pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, 20 Most Powerful Women in Global Television. I mean, that's wonderful, too. And, and, you know, being recognized by the province of Saskatchewan, I think that was the Order of Merit. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Yeah, and it was a home one, so it has a different kind of meaning. I mean, the Order of Canada, I was in shock when I was at a conference in London and the Governor General's office phoned and and she told me, and I said, are you sure? Like, I mean, I just thought, what? Like, where did this come from, right? It's just, it's stunning, actually. I mean, you just, you just think, what happened here? It's, it's a, it's a huge honor and a very humbling experience. Oh, I think it's wonderful. Valerie, I know you're a fierce advocate for Canadian content. Can you tell us a little bit about, especially, well, in particular for our cart.ca listeners who might not know, about the genesis of the CMF? It was founded in April of 2010, I believe. And about that public-private partnership and how the CMF goes about funding the creation of original domestic content and support for our Canadian media industry. Just a tour sure. d'horizon. 
You know, the genesis was quite interesting. The original model when I came to the CTF, the board was a mix of uh, producers and broadcasters. There was a lot of pressure on that particular model for a whole variety of reasons that we don't need to get into. But I think what really drove it was not just the governance question, it was also what was happening in the industry. And at the time, uh, James Moore was our minister, and he was a very young, digital well, savvy guy yeah, on the Hill. And we didn't know things were changing. We kind of got notice 24 hours to come to a press conference and there would be an announcement. And at that announcement, he announced that the CTF would be would roll up and a program that Telefilm administered called the Canada New Media Fund would end. And in the place of those would, would be the Canada Media Fund. His whole philosophy was that the world is changing, audiences are changing, people are looking for content anytime, any place, anywhere. We're becoming a very sophisticated technology. This was 2009, he announced it. And uh, by the way, the Canada Media Fund, if producers apply, they have to apply not just for traditional linear television, but one other platform. Well, I will tell you the hewing and crying and gnashing of the teeth that went on in the industry around that. And I can't say everybody hated, nobody really liked it because it was, it was like saying, you know, every book in the country should be a feature film. Well, the fact is some books make great feature films and some just don't. I am a girl from the farm and my philosophy is you got a problem, you bring people into the room because I really do believe people are smart. And in our industry in particular, you have a really big group of highly experienced, intelligent and sophisticated thinkers, right? So we brought everybody into a room and somehow the attendance was so massive that they were very tight. They had to actually rub shoulders with each other. So we had the big broadcast distribution undertakings like the Shaw, Rogers, you know, our, our funders on the private money side. Some will argue that it's not really private money. It's money from cable subscribers, but we're not going to go there. And then we had, you know, the unions and guilds. We had all the industry associations. We had the broadcasters. And I brought in from Iqaluit, a young woman that I had just met, Alethea Arnek Barrell, and she has her traditional family tattoo on her face. And she is one of the most interesting creatives in the country. And a young guy, Amos, from Yellowknife. Because to me, this is the next generation of creators. And I wanted to see them in that room. And they were terrified, those poor kids, like smart. But in the, in the tent, suddenly, we had this discussion. It was really interesting. We had uh, Ron... He was with Hydro One. He was on our board. He was a fantastic guy. He died a few years after that. He'd been at Bell for a while, years before. And we were in the room and everybody was fractious and angry and distressed. And we went around the table and they all spoke. I think it was Norm Boland said, well, we, we don't want to hear from the staff. We want to hear from the board. So Ron stood up and he said, a, said the most interesting thing. He said, well, I'll tell you where the board stands on this. I walked into this room. It's like I never walked out 30 years ago. And I'm so disappointed about what I heard from you people. Like you're all in your same like little territories. You know, and he was brilliant. He was so eloquent. He said, so we'll be listening to the staff. Over to you, Valerie. Right. And I said, oh, great. It was falling apart. Mm. Like I could see at the coffee break, factions were developing and people were really distressed and rightly so in a way. So I, on the flip chart, listed 12 policy issues that we had to resolve. When they came back in the room, I said, look, guys, this room's way too small and we're never going to get to any answers here. So here's what we need to do. You guys volunteer for which which issue, which area you're really passionate about and want to work on. And we're going to set up working groups to move ahead. And we did. We spent a year consulting, you know, coast to coast to coast and with the working groups. And I would say we did not get agreement. 
I hate consensus. I think it's a really bad way to work, but you have to listen to everybody. That's a different thing. So we listened, we learned, and people came along. Like they said, look, we really don't like this, but we'll go along for a year, but we have to change it if it doesn't work. I said, of course. I mean, this is new. Like we don't have the answers here. So we launched it and the minister, I think, felt pretty good because there was no political uproar. We got into the new program. We had to really think about what to do. And we got, Bill, not just the digital connection to TV, but a whole new experimental stream, which was where the gaming piece and the VR and the AR and all of that interactive and immersive digital media content. Yeah, big business. Big business. And very, very, it's poised for huge success. I mean, already is successful in Canada mm -hmm. and internationally, but it's on the cusp of something pretty huge. And it's actually where there's return on some pretty decent money back into the program. Set up some international juries for that because I said, it's not that our team doesn't know, but this is brand new for us. Let's get the brightest and the best to help us kind of figure this out. And away we went, what is called the Convergence Stream, which is the TV piece plus mm -hmm. the digital and the experimental stream. Convergence Stream is still the lion's share of the money. And a lot of that is tied to the financing of content, which still comes from the big broadcast distribution undertakings. Dilemma being, of course, only the cable revenue comes into Canadian programming. And that is not going to last by the look of things out there. The, the model was still kind of drawn from the old days where it's a public-private funder. That's how it's been described in the country, as you say, government money combined with the regulatory piece for the cable guys or the BDUs through cable to us. And we, we started with the program. There were lots of trial and errors. I think one thing that I worked really hard at at the CMF is transparency and consultation and dialogue with the industry in an open way and make it very clear, we cannot solve everything. And you live in a fishbowl in these jobs. You know, you're just, you're constantly under scrutiny and you're constantly questioned and we can't fix everything for everybody, but we can at least put things on the table. And as I said, people are smart. And if you ask for their help, you usually get a wealth of ideas, more than you can manage. And you somehow find your way through that forest to something that actually works. And, and for me, the CMF is like our shareholder is the public. We are kind of a neutral entity in that way. We're not on the side of the producers. We're not on the side of the broadcasters. We're not on the side of our funders. We're on everybody's. You know, we need everybody to make this work. And I think that's one reason I just believe if you're fair and honest and transparent with people, they at least will get it, even if they don't always agree. And it's worked pretty well for us so far. That's good. I love the vision statement on the CMF website. I'll just read it out here. Quote, a world where Canada's talent and experiences transcend platforms and borders, triggering emotion, innovation, and ideas, end of quote. You know, we talk about where I come from, sort of legacy or traditional linear, whatever we call it now, broadcasting. When I was doing these vision and mission statements, they were famous. Maybe it was me. <laughs> they were famous for the debate and the squabbling that went on into creating them. How did this vision statement come into being? I was thinking about that the other day because we had some new really great board members recently appointed. One of them asked about the vision statement and was it still relevant? Did it need renewal? And you know how these things go. You make them and then they sit on a shelf and rarely do you go back to them. And I, I think that's a very powerful one. And I actually think it, it came about, I think, when we were doing some communication work and, and rebranding a few years ago. We had a pretty good one, but it was pretty a little bit bureaucratic. And I said, what does this actually mean? 
And so we had a debate, I think it was at one of the board planning sessions and really tried to craft some priorities about what we were trying to do. And then that came as a result of it. But what's interesting to me about it when I reviewed it recently is it's more relevant today than it was when we made it because, you know, the world has changed so much in the last 15 years. I mean, with the digital revolution and the entry of the streamers and the downward pressure that's put on the Canadian system and the effect it's had on our broadcast sector and in turn on our center, because our clients are still the producers. I mean, our check is cut to the production company, not the broadcaster. A lot of people get that confused Mm. with the broadcast licenses and the conditions of license requirement for broadcasters. And broadcasters do put money in content, obviously, but the CMF money is a separate process to do that. So when I looked at it the other day, I thought this is really critical because it gets under the content. And this is my new mission in life. I am not going to talk about the word programs anymore because we have spent so many years at the CMF listening to the industry. We're still tied structurally to many elements that actually go right back to the original Broadcasting Act. We are still tied to the financial funding structure that's there. And that's all good. And it's been fantastic for the country. This sector structure, the structures are built in industry. They've employed people. They've done wonderful content that travels the world. You look at our kids' content, our docs, and even the big dramas lately that are highly successful. I mean, Kim's, Transplant, Murdoch, it's dangerous. The Porter, um, sort of. I mean, it's phenomenal what's happening out there. This statement is about the content. And that's my new my new ambition, if you like, is to, I think there is no shortage of creativity in this country. There's no shortage of innovation when I look at our immersive digital media sector and the gaming sector and what's going on there. I just chaired the the VR jury for the Vancouver Festival. I've done it twice now and watched all the VR content. And it doesn't matter what you think about the technology and is it consumer friendly and all those arguments. When you get in that space, it's phenomenal. And of course, the new trend of the metaverse. And I'm not sure about that yet. <laughs> My step, Catherine, took me through it. And I thought, okay, yeah, I get it. But like, why? You know, and so. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to the singularity moment myself. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think the, the point about all these platforms, and in my view, it doesn't matter if you're a feature film person or a traditional linear TV person or an immersive digital media or a digital first, you know, the YouTube and YouTube and TikTok creators. That's our whole new generation of incredible talent. The country is, we are blessed with an overabundance of talent, innovation, idea. I think our structures have to shift. You know, we're all living in a very different environment. At least my job is to make sure that our domestic market has a really strong place in that environment. It's it's tough right now, given the way the world is. So it's kind of a disruptive environment. And I've heard and seen you quoted as referencing for disruptor. Does that translate into practical terms? The CMF being a disruptor or the CMF facilitating creative disruption? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a mass. I love the word. I think this, well, I like it better than discoverability or modernization. Let me put it that way. (laughs) Two two words that have been bandied about crazily, but. I think I had that somewhere. I'll take that out. (laughs) (laughs) No, we can talk about that too. I mean, it just depends how you interpret it. But I think there's, there's been a lot of disruption. The internet was a big disruptor. It changed the way the world is looking for content. You look what happened in COVID and now. Canadians, like everybody in the world, in two clicks, they can be watching something from Britain or Korea or wherever they want to get their content from. So the disruption is wholesale, I think, for us as a society. After the events of 2022 and the murders, 
that changed everything for us too. There's a heightened awareness of systemic racism in this country and all of our parts in it, including these white colonial institutions run by, um, in, in our media business, by a sector of very well-meaning, but you know, people who are primarily white, primarily male, sorry, Bill, a white okay. male right in front okay. of me, primarily, but you know, I have that, a Druid background. <laughs> <laughs> me too. No wonder we get along. That's just been the system that there is, and it needs to be shifted. It needs to be changed. That's another disruptor and a, a very positive one, because it's actually forcing us to look at where does storytelling come from and where is authentic storytelling and who should be telling the stories and all of those questions. We had a fantastic experience working with the Indigenous community a few years ago when I really felt as a group of funding agencies, broadcasters, etc., we all used to have very distinct programs for Indigenous content making, NFB, everybody did. Mm -hmm. And they all kind of drifted away. And we used to have broadcast offices across the country mm -hmm. too. It was a very different environment. And that's all drifted away. So I really felt well, everybody's short of money. Why can't we get together and figure out a better way to support content making from the Indigenous community? And we you know, debated it for a while. We had meetings. We hired uh, Marcia Nickerson, who works a lot consulting in this field. We did a cross-country consultation, which led to the Indigenous Screen Office. And now they're up and running and they've got their own support. And we you know, had Imaginative before. Imag well, Imaginative's still here and yeah. still very, very effective in terms of what they're doing. But it's not a funding organization. Right. You know, Imaginative's essentially a festival and highlighting the results of the content. And it's a fantastic organization. These debates are really important. They're healthy for the country. And my view is, and I, I said it in the press release that went out on our reorganizational change, embracing this. It, people are fearful for change, always. It's natural for us as humans. But this is about expansion and growth. It's not about retraction. And I changed our language inside the CMF. You know, equity, inclusion, diversity has been kind of the mantra that we've had for a few years. We brought a group of black leaders in in June of 2020 to start talking about what do we need to, where do we go? What do we need to do? That's not their job to tell us, but they are have the lived experience. We don't. And so we found a way through that. We hired some great people, two individuals, that are from those communities, one in Montreal and one in Toronto, and listen, trying hard to listen and fix this and make sure that whatever we do gets rid of those barriers to access, but also fights that the whole issue of systemic racism. The interesting thing about this for me is this is about growth of mm -hmm. applicants, mm -hmm. growth of content, growth of ideas. You mentioned the porter. Look at that incredible story driven by people who lived it, driven by people who are of that community. Mm -hmm. And I think audiences around the world are craving this. You look at transplant. There's another one, mm -hmm. Syrian doctor coming mm -hmm. to Canada. Mm -hmm. People crave these stories. There's nothing wrong with police procedurals. We've had many successful ones in the country, great hospital dramas. But these stories have an authenticity to them that is just different. Yeah. And it's, it piques our curiosity. And you know what it does, Bill? It helps us understand each other. That's what storytelling is from the day of time around the fire. You share your lived experience. You share your life with somebody. You share your frustrations and you share the good and the bad and the ugly. Reconciliation is not going to come from government policy. It helps, but it's going to come from people telling stories to each other. A very and indigenous tradition. And people learning about each other. Yeah. So for me, this is part of the new mantra on the getting under the content. I think at the CMF, we have changed a lot over the years that I've been there, but we generally, because we're so tied to a, a, an older structure built for the country in a different time that was very successful, 
So we do little pilots or we do little tinkering or we work with government to not break our contribution agreement with the feds, but to try to work around it. COVID was bizarrely, in spite of its horrible impacts, very helpful to us because it allowed us to make an argument for a bit of experimentation. And what could we learn through this? And we learned that this project by project financing model doesn't hold the industry well. So we tried some development without a broadcaster, arguing that the industry still needs to develop so that we have something on the screens post-COVID. We're now looking at some slate financing for development because that's the nature of the beast. All of these are a bit out of side of our pure direction. But because of COVID, the people at Canadian Heritage are fantastic with us. I mean, they work hand in glove. And we really try to find ways together to make sure we've got the right tools under the industry. And that's my focus now is what are the right tools for today? We've had some great ones, and now we just need to look at the new ones. You've got a business plan. I think it's a 2021-22 business plan. We don't have the time to go through the whole thing, but what would be some of the highlights or the key performance metrics for you, Valerie? Well, I think every year at the end of the year, and we're right in that now, we look back at the year and look at some key indicators. This year, our projects are are pretty well consistent, about just over 1,400 projects. Might be a bit lower than last year, but the budgets are a bit higher. You know, $1.5 billion in production volume. And the interesting thing about that is for every dollar we invest, $4 is triggered from other sources. Kind I of like, wish my financial advisor could provide that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you can look at things like the awards that have been presented to CMF-funded content. I mean, our, like I said, our content creators, there's no issue there. The issues are get, finding the right structure to get underneath them. I think our other big priorities for last year were certainly around what was then still out of our equity and inclusion strategy. Because of the COVID money, we were really fortunate. You know, we, we put out $120 million to the overall sector in 10 days with the COVID money to, to, How to much stop in 10 the days? $120 million. Yeah. And what was interesting about that, we worked very closely with Telephone because they administer our programs. But because our funding has been project by project, we had to quickly gather up all those single purpose companies, put them under the parent because the check had to go. You know, there were, it's just the way the structure was set up that came to us from the feds. And part of that COVID money certainly went to communities that had not been served by the CMF. There's a sector development program that we had, and we put a lot of money into that. Into The communities out there that are working with Black uh, creators, it's either BIPOC or BIPOC, and nobody likes those terms because it makes everybody into a melting pot, and they're very distinct very different communities with different needs. And it's American creation. Isn't it, it? I don't know where it came I from. It I, it's just, it's, it's even not a very nice acronym in, in right. my view. But I'm, anyway, people that we talk to say it's not the best. You just can't put everybody under one bucket. So we looked at, we worked with a number, about 12 different organizations who are directly connected into those communities, gave them some support through COVID. We worked, we hired the two people, obviously, built the equity inclusion strategy, So, you know, everything we've done has been helpful. It's not the end of the road. I mean, this is work that's ongoing. In the new structure that I've developed, the young woman, Tamara Dawit, is a Black Ethiopian documentary filmmaker, just got Hot Docs Vanguard Award, I think it was last, just a few months ago. And she's the VP now of this sector and and deeply connected and has deep roots into those communities. And Diego Grancio is in the Montreal office. And Again, has the French and his background is a bit more on the digital media side. So I think we've got some fantastic people. We have Richard Koo, who's been with us 15 years. He's taking much more of a leadership role. Of course, Natalie Clermont has been with us, again, more of a leadership role. So I'm trying to prepare the CMF to be as future ready as possible. 
The legislation is there. We know it's coming down the pipe. We know there will be changes to us at the end of the day, whatever comes out of that. We can't predict it. But we're trying to get as ready as we can for it. Valerie, it's obvious from our discussion so far, our conversation so far, you are riding the curve, riding the wave of trends. And the CMF has always been very good on trends. But you also follow trends in a, in a documented way. The CMF Key Trends Report tells us a lot about the future and where we're going. Where exactly are we going? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Some say to hell and back, but I'm not sure where we're going. No, you know, I think the trends report that we've done over the years has been a fantastic document. I mean, you know, a lot of people that I run into when I travel all over the world always tell me they read it. Sometimes they don't really understand. A lot of it's to do with the technology changes that we're all facing. But I know the one thing that it was in the trends report this year was about the metaverse. And as I mentioned, like Catherine took me through it. And I think the trends report has been great at looking to what the future might be. And I think technology has already changed the way we work. You know, we're in the discussion too. Are we reopening the offices? Are we not? This oh, work yeah. from home, you know, yeah. it's changed everything for everybody. And I think for content making, there were a lot of changes. You know, we found, well, even, even pre-COVID, because of the, the way people are looking for content and the importance of the digital media aspect. Some Canadian companies were buying digital companies, bringing them right in-house. Others were finding partners to do that leg of the work. Things change all the time in this sector. And I think the trends report is very future-oriented. I cannot possibly give you the amount of information that's in there. I'd encourage your listeners just to go to the website. It's right there. If there are people who are really keen on seeing where is the technology taking us, um, you know, I'm of a generation where I'm not so sure I want to go there either, but I know it's a very interesting place. And of course, with COVID, the fantastic thing about technology is you could travel and be right in a safe place, right? You could be almost, if you go into, again, the virtual reality environment, and not just in our sector, but they're using it in science and medicine and, you know, those big oil rigs out in the ocean. They're setting those up as VR and training the guys who are working on them through that process. And then when they actually physically get there, they know exactly where they are and what to do. I was recently in Icaluit working a person named Madeline Redfern, who is uh, a very extraordinary Inuit leader, talking about bringing in uh, fiber optic cable to provide a more robust uh, internet system in Nunavut. And one of the companies that is very keen on this is De Boer's Diamond Mining. Mm -hmm who is running a diamond mine using artificial intelligence and kind of a virtual reality scenario. So it's, you're right, it's everywhere. We, uh, at Cal, it's one of my favorite places in the country. I just, the first time I went up north, I was still in Atsas Film, and I went up to, to the territory, and honestly, if there'd been a job there, I'd still be there. I mean, it changed my life. There's something so spiritual about that place, and it's so... It's like I say to people in the South, you guys think you got it bad? Try making something in the North. Right. You know, you got to bring the sandbags. And in those days, the joke was, you want to watch a movie Friday night? You got to start downloading it the previous Friday. And it was no joke. Well, that'll be another podcast. And that'll be another podcast. But, you know, <laughs> but it's a phenomenal place. And you look at the tr creativity that's come oh. out of the North. It's, yeah. it's just unbelievable. So I'm with you on that. I think the future is the future. Trends come and go. I think we try to keep our eye on it. We get feedback from around the world on that. The other thing we're doing at the CMF is a big shift in data itself and starting to talk about 
not just the outputs of what we do, which we do, like how many projects, how much money, blah, 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 but the outcomes and what the trends are there. Because really good data helps you make better decisions on programs. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're only ca- we know we're not capturing about 30% of the content that's supported by the CMF now because we can't find, we need to find a way, and we haven't been able to yet, to be able to count those audiences in the way we do traditional linear TV. It's important too. So I think it's a combination of what we're doing now mixed with where we're going and how you figure out the movement to keep supporting the content in the middle of all of that. I'd like to come back to the equity and inclusion strategies for a, for a little while because I think they're extremely important. And you've obviously shared the same view that they're extremely important. You have a strategy at the CMF for 2020 to 2023 a little bit more. How is the CMF? How are you addressing systemic racism, other forms of discrimination on screen, and perhaps even in a broader civic approach? Well, the first thing we did was bring people in to start talking. That was back in 2020. Then mm-hmm. we expanded that to support for those communities through the COVID money. Then we did the hiring sort of in the mix of all of that. And I think what our job is, is to work with our industry because we don't actually pick the shows. We don't actually like we didn't pick the border. You know, we're involved with it. But it really has to be the ideas of the content producers finding the financial support to support those ideas. Authenticity is really important. I'm a, a big fan of making sure that people who have those lived experiences have the ability to tell their stories. It's not easy. Because it's it's a ch- big change that we're in. And change is always, people are always fearful of change. There's a lot of risk in change. There's a lot of risk in disruption. But you can't legislate it. Yeah. I mean, it is what, what it is. I'm not a fan. Like I said, when we did the gender initiative, and it was like, 50, we have to have women in senior positions, you know, directing, producing, et cetera, at 50%. And I said, no, why would we hold it at 50%? What if suddenly we've got 70% of women leading these shows? Is that... Do we, what do we do? Scale them back? I mean, to me, it's about breaking down the barriers. It's about allowing the growth of those communities who've never had really open access. And we're not, we're just in, we're just in the baby steps of this. We're just trying to figure out, okay, now what else do we need to do? And every year it will change and every year it will grow. We've had some changes on our board. We've had the addition of two people who are not white and not from Toronto or or Montreal, which is extremely important in terms of the diversity of the country. That is not up to us. That's our, the members of the CMF oddly are the government of Canada and the coalition of cable companies or BDU companies. So they did very good work around that. So I think it's an external and an internal thing. And we've done some changes to all the programs that we're operating right now to make sure that there's incentives for, for the broadcasters to make sure that they've got people who are in the mix that are not from, we're all creatures of habit. You turn habitually to people you know and people you know who can deliver on time and on budget and people you've worked with before. Media sector is pretty much a bit of an old boys club, to be perfectly honest. And that's not going to hold anymore. I mean, we're not going back from this place. And that's a damn good thing for the country. I'd like to ask you a question about your database collection. I read that the CMS database collection on this subject regarding race-based and gender-based data is called persona. Now, maybe it's a mistaken attachment to the Webster's Dictionary, but, <laughs> but persona to me is often about character and personality. And I just wonder if there's a risk of some unintended mischaracterization there. I wonder if maybe a bit Orwellian, perhaps? 
No, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to know what to call it. I, I liked the word persona when it came to me. I don't know how we got to it because it was a great team that is doing the work on that. And to me, it was like of your person. Who are you of your person? Like that's, identity. That's how, yeah, it's like an identity. There's some backlash to that too because some people don't want to self-identify. And that's okay. We're not forcing it. We're just saying we have programs that incentivize. And if you, like for a broadcaster, if you want to access those programs, you need to demonstrate. And it's not good enough, Bill, for you to say, oh yeah, my my DOP is, is black. Like, so who says? Does the DOP agree with you? It's really important that people self-identify because that's how we can build that's how we can get a baseline of what's really going on out there and how we can build forward. Is there a, an element of risk? Always. I mean, there's an element now. We've got programs that say, for example, in our Indigenous program, there's requirements and, and they're met on paper and then sometimes physically on the set, they're not so much. Yeah. You know, So it's a, it's a very fluid industry in terms of who's working together and who's working with who. And we also get the other side of the argument where... We want to break down the barriers. We want to tackle systemic racism in these institutions. We want to make sure that authentic stories are done by people with those experiences. But we don't want to prevent people from working together. There are people who do want to work together that come from all types of communities and races and backgrounds. And that's kind of important for storytelling, too. So it's it's really finding a balance in all of that and making sure that we we don't overstep and making sure that we have the right tools again to get under the content making. You know, we get so tied up in structures and money and that's, I did an op-ed recently and it was one of the reasons I did it because so much of the debate around the new legislation is about, you know, structural concerns. And I'm not saying the concerns aren't valid, of course they are. But the real point of this debate was to change our structure in the country to allow for all the incredible things that are happening out there and bring the streamers into the mix. And in my opinion, that's rightly so. They're very good partners. They offer producing and they offer content makers an incredible opportunity. I read recently the guys who did Power of the Dogs. He saw, you know, 45 million views on Netflix for that show. Like you can, the domestic market will never have that reach. So we have to find a way to find this balance. And the important part, of course, is strength of the domestic industry because you can own your IP, but if you don't monetize it, it's not much good to you. Right. And if we want an identity and a strong culture, and we I just came out of two days at the Producers Association conference in Quebec. If you want that distinctive culture, if you want what Canada is, we have to have some ownership over our content. Otherwise, we're a country of just service producers. And service production is fantastic. Yeah. It keeps this country humming. It keeps people working. It brings the studios up here. It gives Canada a wonderful reputation for a great place to do business. My job is to keep an eye on the domestic market, to make sure we don't lose it in all of this. It's just who we are. That's the authentic story, too, is what are the authentic stories out of Canada. All right. So we've mentioned you've mentioned balance, and I think that's good. I think we all think that's good. What about the balance between English language and French language, CMF envelopes? Is it 40-60? Is it 40 Right now, English, it's two-thirds, one-thirds. Two-thirds English, one-third French. It's been that way okay. certainly since I okay. came to the CTF and I think for many years. That's a direction from the federal government. And there has been a very effective and strong lobby, which was reflected in the platform of the Liberals prior to the election, to change that percentage to 60 English, 40 French. There's a, there is a wide, diverse view of opinions on that. Our point at, at the CMF is, is, is we will do that. We can do that, but we can't do increased resources because part of the deal is that it doesn't 
that money to increase the French to 40, it's not the English market that's taking the hit on it. But the English market is stable and the French goes up to the 40%. They go from, well, whatever, depending on the amount of money you're talking about, but they go from a two-thirds, one-third split to a 40-60 split. Okay. So that's where the 40-60 has come into the conversation recently, and it was reflected in the Liberal platform. We didn't get direction in this budget to do it, and the challenge for us will be, it's it's going to be impossible to do that without the additional resources. We're going to talk about that later. You've touched on this next inquiry of mine a little bit already, but this is maybe to focus on the tag. I, I see an evolution of CMF programs from a mainly, as we've talked about, mainly broadcast license driven model to now an abundance of sort of special initiatives, special programs. Can you spend a bit more time on that? Sure. The In the convergent stream, the trigger to access CMF money is a broadcast license. There were days when development did not need a license, only a letter of interest. You probably remember those days. (laughs) And the problem often with that is, and and there were days of first come, first served, and there were days of a million different models. And the problem was, in those models, you throw everything against the wall to see what sticks. The problem with everything coming in is that you get 2,500, 3,000 applications, and you know there's enough money for about 1,500 ballpark. And that's why what we call the broadcast performance envelopes came into play. They were in the structure at the CTF a couple of years, I think, before I came in to do the job. And they've been great tools. They've stabilized. They've given people predictability. There's, it's, they've worked very well. But what it's done is it's, it's offloaded the oversubscription of content demand from the funding organization to the broadcaster. So it's narrowed. Complaints about the envelope system are the broadcasters control everything that's made. There's not enough broadcasters in Canada as a result of partly vertical integration and partly their own demands and pressures. They have to make a living and survive. And as you know, there's been a lot of buying of companies. And I think we work still with about 60 broadcasters, but if you roll them all up to parent companies, there's probably five, five to seven maybe, if you include both language markets. It's a very condensed model. And with the streamer entry into the country, the broadcasters tell us they're being forced to, you know, they can't compete on license fees. They can't compete on what talent is being attracted. They're being kind of pushed into a B-level playing field. I'm not a broadcaster. I don't live that world, but we certainly see it. Now, in our program, the broadcasters have accessed, as per usual every year, pretty much 98% of the envelopes. Our stats haven't changed that much yet, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but we don't know what's coming. And the more pressure that comes down, we may start to see that drift off. The the issue for the envelopes for us is we're just going to take a look at them and we're going to do it with the industry. Is this still the right tool? Because it's a very narrow field of view and we have many, well, you lived it, uh, Mm -hmm. smaller regional broadcasters, Mm -hmm. APTN would be another one, Mm -hmm. OTV, many broadcasters doing different types of content that are very frustrated because the big ones are controlling the lion's share of the money in both language markets. There's about three broadcasters in each that did take the lion's share for all good reasons. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. it's a bad thing. It's just as we change, we have to look at this. And the issue for us is the trigger because there are other ways. I mean, we got a really good move from the federal government a few years ago to allow the the Canadian over-the-top services to also trigger the CMF. And that's a fantastic model. You can take more risk. You don't have to put as much money in. You get it on Two Point TV or Gem or Illico, you know, wherever the service is, Crave, whatever. 
and you can there's some phenomenal content that's going on those services that then sometimes make it into the major network, sometimes not. So that was a really big advantage for us. The question is always that comes to us as well, are the streamers going to be able to trigger? Mm. The point is not the streamers don't need the money really to trigger, but they are in the marketplace and they are a source of financing for the production. So how do we wrangle that down to the ground? I mean, there's a legislation process going on that looks at that. From a programming perspective, it's just something we need to look at. We've been kind of holding on all that. Filmmakers, Bill, in this country who still call me regularly and say, I'm a Canadian, I'm 10 out of 10. My content's about, pick one, the Churchill River. Because it's a one-off POV, I cannot get a Canadian broadcast license. I've got ZDF, I've got Arte. Why can't I trigger the CMF? And it's a perfectly legitimate question. And you look at the regulatory relief that the private funds like Shaw and, and Rogers and Bell funds and, and others receive from the CRTC, and you know they're able to do content now and invest in equity a different way. The requirement, of course, is it always has to be shown in Canada. But in this day and age, that's not hard to figure out. Yep. And I think part of our part of our agenda as a country should be to get this content out into the world. And if you've got European or even US broadcasters, in, we've got a very interesting project right now in the north. And the broadcaster's not Canadian, they're from Greenland. And it's a fabulous company. You've just been up there. You probably know who it is. My question is, and why wouldn't we want this to happen? This is a young, very powerful company in, in the territory of Nunavut. They're working with a Greenland company, also one of the majors in Greenland. I think Norway maybe is in too. I'm not sure right now. But there is market interest. We just can't get it out of Canada. So we've got to find another way around this. So the issue for us is expanding the streamers. Our Canadian broadcasting system is critical to what we do. There's no question about that. 70% of the audiences that we finance are still on linear TV or a platform associated with it. But people are not watching necessarily through cable. They're watching through their internet or their broadband and mobile increasingly. It's the structure that needs to shift a little bit. And again, these are big you know, questions of a large magnitude. Tax credits also play a role. I can get going on that for 20 minutes if you want. But, you know, flipping the tax credits. We have three more podcasts coming. Okay. <laughs> flipping the tax credits so that they're paid out in advance, like Ireland does. You know, the banks don't like it. I spoke about this at AQPM just yesterday. The banks won't like it, nor will the accountants or the, the finance people. But public policy shouldn't be able to have that money. You know, the millions of dollars that go into service fees and interest and all yeah. of that just to get the tax credit out of the system, which the government already has to pay. Okay, so we're moving away from... Oh, sorry, I uh, forgot your original question. <laughs> yes, okay. So we're moving away from uh, having Canadian broadcasters as, I don't know, we call them gatekeepers for most of the CMF funding. And I'm getting a sense that in a, in a more perfect world, we'd have a platform agnostic approach what would a platform agnostic approach look like for Valerie Creighton? Well, right now we're very platform specific. Yeah. We're Convergent Stream, yeah. which is linear TV, and one other platform, which sort of can be, we're not sure. Sometimes it's a website, sometimes it's a, and then we've got the experimental stream. And they're very divided. I think our view is content is content, and there's great content out there. People now, even production companies that used to be pure feature film plays are mm -hmm. now working in TV. Mm -hmm. So it's changed, right? Mm -hmm. People, the world is looking for great storytelling and it doesn't matter which platform it is on. Mm -hmm. So the, in my world, I think the CMF needs to pivot to be a very strong content fund. I mean, we are now, but differently. It's just moving, not moving away from the broadcast trigger, but it is one trigger 
and looking to what other triggers could be. We have to remember that money goes into the production, right? That's our job is to get the production developed, first of all, and then made. And then the market is the market. We've got some other systems in the country we could look at. Yep. You know, we have a tax credit system that if you're 10 out of 10 in Canadian, you get the most. And if you're 6 out of 10 or a service production, you get less. And maybe there's something in looking at the way content is financed that we could consider while we ensure if our Canadian broadcasters are in the market and they want the porter and they're putting the money up, then they get the most money out of the system. Or not they don't, but the production right. gets the most money. We don't have all the answers here, but we're going to start talking with the industry this year. We're in a transition year for sure, because our program or whatever direction comes to us from the federal government will come as a result of what happens with the bill and the CRT process. And we're at the end of that train, yep. but we're going to try to get us future ready for whatever is on that train as we can. So in the ideal world, I would say we need to be under the content. That's our true North Star. Whenever I get confused, I think, why are we doing this? Well, we're doing it for the content. Well, and we're also talking a lot about money. And the federal liberal government, I believe, proposed to double the CMF's funding in their recent election platform. But I didn't see that in their last budget. If that money doesn't come through, Valerie, what are the implications for the CMF? And what does it mean for the CMF in the long term? It's going to come through, come hell or high water, if it's the last thing I do while I'm here. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, it's not my decision to make, but I think there's some... Really, I want you on my side. I think, I think there's some compelling positioning that can be done around that money. And, you know, the 40-60 for the French split is is one. I mean, for sure, that's a that's a very strong, has a very strong political interest. Quebec did a fantastic job, uh, AQPM and all the people there, Alan Messier, they were really instrumental in getting the budget doubled because getting the budget doubled is for everybody, not just for that initiative. I think the industry will come together quite aggressively to, to demonstrate why, what the benefits to Canada are from doing that. That's the first thing. If something goes sideways on that, Bill, there's two things. I mean, we know the cable money is not going to last. Like we we work with our BDU guys and the CRTC and financial team does all the analysts that the banks do around where are these companies going and what is their potential for revenue. I think cable money won't last. So that's a big piece of the budget. So the, the doomsday scenario is we're down to whatever the feds give, which right now is 120 million. So that's a very different model than what we've got today. Even if the doubling of the money comes and there isn't additional resources in the system as cable falls off for us in two to three years, we'll be right back to the status quo. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you can't do a damn thing without money pretty much is the end of the question. I have no answers to this. I, it's above my pay grade to get this decision-making process through. We can be part of it. Certainly we can give statistics and information about what could happen um, to the, to the content making sector. In various scenarios, we work with government all the time to do that. But I think the real question for the country is, what kind of a country do we want to be? And if we want our content to succeed in the way it has, both at home and around the world, and be part of the global content mix, we'll behave in a certain way. And if we don't want that to happen, or we have other priorities that are perceived more important, then we'll behave in a different way. It's a little concerning, right, if the federal promise of doubling your budget doesn't come through and if cord cutting by consumers is 
bringing us to a place of less cable satellite revenues for the CMF as BDUs, broadcast distribution undertakings, um, you are going to run into a funding gap. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we so, did four years ago, which is why Melanie Jolie was our minister at the time, and she brought in what is called the stabilization money just to top off the decline in cable. And, you know, we're estimating 3 to 4% annually it was five percent this year so it's accelerating for certain and, and that's just a normal market thing because people are still there's still cable out there for certain they give the cable away with their internet and telecom packages and that's okay too they're in business to survive so cable is not the way of the future i don't think it, people are watching the content but they're watching the same they're watching transplant not on their cable but through their internet service well, so given all of this where do you see the CMF in, in five years if a rapidly evolving world of cord cutting and streaming uh, services, it's rapidly, as we've talked about, overtaking linear, traditional, legacy, whatever we call them now, broadcasting. Right. Are you optimistic five years out? I am, because okay. I think that we've got a really compelling argument. I think we've got jobs as an argument. I think we've got just the content itself as an argument. I think we've got history on our side for success. I think we've got what this content does for Canada's reputation internationally and a 12.6 billion contribution to the GDP. I think if you put all those pieces together, you have a really strong case to make. And that's what we need to do this year is make that case because the country has a lot of priorities. I think the reason you mentioned the budget, you know, I was advised that it was it was on the table for a portion to start to flow. And then, of course, the invasion of Ukraine happened. And the deal with the NDP happened and there's other financial priorities. This is always going to be the case with government. And I appreciate that. But I also believe that where there's will, there is way. And, you know, I think we have to help them get to the will part. And it's not that there's resistance to that. There's not. Our minister's fantastic. The people we work with. I like Pablo. Well, yeah, he's great. He's I named a horse after him. We'll talk about that on another <laughs> podcast. Because the horse was salt and pepper gray and full of energy and life. And it reminded me of him. And everybody says, it looks just like him. I said, yeah, it does. It's not for lack of will. It's just for lack of... Our sector has never been really great at lobbying. If you watch oil and gas, agriculture, technology, they're pretty sophisticated. Yeah. They got the right people in the right places. And our, our people have always been kind of We've got the BDUs who do lobby very aggressively because they're the big business side of things. And we've got the production community and the broadcast community. But we never really, Quebec is a good model of coming together and, and a very strong, clear voice. And English Canada is, is not as good at that. I've said this for years. I don't make no bones about it. And I think we're at a place where that's going to have to change. Yeah. I think we're all going to have to work together to get this through. Well, we've talked a lot about change and how people generally tend to uncomfortable with change. Totally. Um, my sense is that the CMF has changed in another way too, but uh, perhaps I'm wrong and perhaps they'll correct me. As we've talked about a little bit, shifted away from a market-driven approach to some extent and leaned more into mandating editorial input in creative content and teams. At least that's what I'm hearing from some of my former C-suite colleagues who are still in the business. Is this accurate? Well, I think in part, I, I'm not sure what they mean by mandating, but you know, we get direction from the federal government. This is part of what I talk about with structures tying us to the dock. They say, go out and do the best and the brightest of everything in TV and experimental, but it's two thirds, one third. But you have to have English inside Quebec and French outside Quebec. But 
there's regional, but there's indigenous, but there's all these buts, right? So if that's what people you talk to mean by mandated, certainly those things are all there, but they're also important priorities. You know, it's not that you can ignore all that. I don't think, though, the move is away from market driven. In fact, if I if I would say anything, I'd say the opposite. I think we're always like I do a lot of international work, building relationships out there, looking for co-production. We just did a the Canadian Heritage Arm of International just did a fantastic trade mission to Dubai. We're going to have a we have 12 international partnerships around the world with countries that are agency to agency, not government to government, because. Those are very difficult to adjust. Mm-hmm. Agency to agency, we can turn these on a dime. They've been, they're small, small amounts of money, but they give producers in both countries the opportunity to develop something that's market ready. Yeah. I think in Canada, a lot of time, our structure and you know the requirements for broadcasters through conditions of license or what used to be prime time or all these things kind of force development into production where it's maybe not as ready yeah. and the market impact on that might not be as great as it could be. So I think if I think market driven is something we always have our eye on. Even our our biggest calculations are based on audience. Is that you know if that's what you're talking about as market? So I don't think that's gone away. In fact, I think that's increased. But again, for us, it's balancing the priorities that come with direction with what we need to do for the industry, and they don't always match up. That's yeah. true. But that's why maybe the the impression is we we're parsing out you know certain amounts of money to mandated activities, which is the case, but we haven't lost sight of the other big picture. And in fact, one of the big uh, strategy pieces, because I'm moving the team to look more at strategy on the content side, is about export and international development. Well, I think, well, that's a good answer. And that clarifies a few things for me. One of the CEOs that I talked to was worried that the CMF was becoming a bit of a new government studio like Telefilm. I think. No, that, that's not our job. Okay. That's the job of the producers and whoever the market interest is. All right. Our job, I think, is to make sure we get the right resources yeah. to the people making the content. And that, for me, is, you know, I guess if push came to, to shove hard and everything doesn't go the way we hope, there'd still be money to do development. And maybe by really focusing on strong development and getting it into, the, into companies who can really develop those projects and work with others, they could potentially be in a stronger position to negotiate with the market, even on issues like the rights. I don't know. I'm not the magic thinker here. We're really trying to think about a number of different scenarios that could unfold and where our part of it is. But we have no interest in prescribed. We do have an interest in making sure the content gets into those models. Decades and decades of conversation that I've been involved with about the mandate of the CBC, Radio-Canada, <coughs> the mandate of the National Film Board, ONF, and maybe they should merge. But I've heard similar things over the years about telefilm and CMF. I think the last time I read detail on it was in the 2021 Broadcast and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel Report. Been a lot of chatter about this potential or theoretical merger of the CMF and telefilm. And I guess a bit like the discussions around CBC and FB. It's a, it's a notion of a single public entity tasked with the creation, production, and there it is, discoverability yeah, yeah. of Canadian content on all screens. Possibly, again, looking at funding gaps and those sorts of things being fully funded by the government rather than struggling with government partnerships and a declining private sector contribution. You know, just as we talked about, you know, what do you think about this idea of a merger of the CMF and Telefilm? Is it you just hope it goes away? Not at all. Okay. I, and I think a merger would be a disaster. I think what has to happen in this country is there has to be really 
what we don't have is clarity on the vision, clarity on a mandate. What are we trying to do in this country with Telefilm and the NFB and the CMF? I'll set the broadcasters aside for a moment because there's that public-private question. But what are we trying to do with the funding bodies in this country? And, you know, the NFB is a great example. They have such an incredible history. How many Oscars have they won? I don't know. It's in the 80s by now. A real legacy for the country. But here we are with 33 million people. You know, other countries have have looked at the concept and successfully implemented a single screen based agency. We look for me, it's driven by how content is made now. And, you know, Telefilm has been a great partner with us. They they administer our files. But if you read the mandate of Telefilm and ours, I challenge you to see if you can find major differences there. Right. Because we're both in the business of audiovisual and the business of audiovisual has changed. So if I were making these decisions, which I am not, I will be implementing the outcome of these decisions, I hope, for a little while anyway, I think we need to have clarity on the vision. And then if I were in charge, I would say, okay, here's where we're trying to get to. There's a new entity called whatever. It's a single screen agency, and it does all of these things. So like bringing the NFB and Telefilm together? I don't know about that. I mean, the government in the platform also talked about modernization. They referenced the NFB, CMF, and Telefilm, but they also referenced their own programs and the tax credit. So again, I think it's a bigger picture. I think you have to preserve some things. I think the the history of the NFB is worth preserving. It's a different time too than when the NFB was set up. And I I just keep thinking about- Yeah, John Grierson's a while ago. A while, yeah. A while ago. I just had a conversation with a lot of my board members. Even James Moore's initiative is a while ago, 13 years ago, since the CMF was set up. Think about like the NFB is a great example. They have these fantastic studios across the country. How could we- build those into a bigger thing, like engaging the public and the business community and the awareness of what's done there. So I think there's a number of ways you can go at it. I think, though, we just need to find the clarity in the vision of what we want to do as a country and then set up the right delivery mechanism to do that. I've been through two changes, big mergers at the CTF, CMF, since I started. The first one was when that we, we all the program moved out of the CTF to Telefilm. And we had Keller Brabant and I had to find our way through that in less than eight weeks. We moved 90% of the staff. The second one was when the CMF was announced. And again, that was a massive undertaking. So it's very difficult to merge anything. I think you really have to be clear on where you're headed. The, the CMF gave us more clarity. We knew what we had to do. Mm-hmm. But I think that now feature films are a critical art form and a critical way to reach people. But we know that especially as an impact of COVID, it's going to be a real challenge to get people back into the cinema. Yet we all crave and love that experience. Although many homes now have a cinema in their basement. So the point is, how do we get this content made? Because it's not that people aren't watching film or television. They're watching it differently. And I think the advantage of a single screen agency is you have a way to really drive the right tools under all of that content, including all of the communities who have not had access because it's compelling. Look what's happened in our Indigenous content around the world this last couple of years. So you get under the content first, and then you just, this worry about what's going to happen is, again, about structure. The question is, what is the best way to support this content, regardless of where it's being made, who's making it, and whether it's featured television, digital media? Authentic stories driven by Canadians that can go to the world, back to the vision statement of the CMF. We're getting very close to the end of our podcast. A couple more questions, but you've touched on Bill C-11 a little bit. 
And I've, of course, read your op-ed piece in, I think it was the April 27th edition of cart.ca. So listeners to this podcast can go to that. But could you spend a little bit of time, please, on Bill C-11, which is the online streaming act? It expands the Broadcasting Act regard to CRTC authority or content platforms like TikTok, like YouTube, like Spotify. I'm not the expert on C11. I mean, for me, the one, the really important parts of C11 were, you know, there's a lot of opinions and debate out there about what has to go and the concern with censorship and the concern with controlling online content. It comes back to, again, how you want to support content in this country. Do we support digital first creators? Well, some would say yes, and most would say no in the true form of what a digital creator is, like the TikTokers and the YouTubers. But I've been talking with both of those organizations lately about how could we partner together, because that's where the next generation of really creative talent is going to come from. I mean, this is this is a huge advantage of those platforms, is they allow people to put up whatever they need to put up, and they those those organizations look for good talent, they develop it. It's fantastic what's happening with that out there. Again, for me, Bill, this is part of the fundamental change. How the bill addresses it is not something that I am the expert at, and I I really can't weigh into that field because it's not me who's guiding those principles. For me, I come back to the content again. It's this great discovery of content on those platforms. So how do we as these organizations make sure those creators are included in the overall system? It's Again, it's a platform agnostic question. I think the minister's been clear on how they tried to approach it. And I know there's debate about the two clauses in the bill that seem to be contradictory. And they're working through all that. That's part of our public democratic legislative process. I'm just really hopeful that the bill can get into the Canadian Heritage Committee because soon, because that's where the real debate can take place. And that's where they bring people in to discuss the varying perspectives and points of view. I think having this debate in the media is not a good thing because people get so biased by it. But let's get into the public process and the public process of the CRTC and try to get through this and sort it out. For, for us at the CMF, the bill is critical to unlocking the old structures and building a better Canada and a future Canada where it's, it's more platform agnostic and inclusive of wherever and whoever wants to make content to the extent we can. But as you said, that also takes the money. Well, talking about press releases and media releases, I saw a few of those about your senior management folks who were perhaps leaving the CMF and that you did a fairly sizable restructuring. Um, Are we to read anything into these changes? I mean, uh, for me anyway, when I see that kind of restructuring, I reflexively begin to think about things like succession planning. And you've been at the CMF now for 15 plus years, 16 years, I think. Into the 16th, yeah. And, And that's quite an accomplishment in itself. But I really hope, and I think there's a an army behind me that really hopes that you're not moving to Portugal anytime soon. Ah, well, you know, it's very appealing to do that right now in this environment. I wouldn't say Portugal, but no, I mean, I think I'm committed to see this work through. I think the, the questions that came up over the last three years about what's happening in the content funding space, what's happening with streamer relationships with the country, what's happening with the concept of a single screen agency. Those are are very passionate ideas that I really believe in and I think are good for content making in this country. That's where my heart lies. I'm perfectly prepared to be a bit patient, but I'm also extremely concerned because the one thing we heard in the over thousand people and, and submissions we got in during our consultation was urgency for change. And 
our industry has been telling us that for five years. We're kind of past the urgency point at this, like let's get on with this. So I'm not going anywhere today, but you know, I, I think if the modernization process, which includes more than just what we talked about with the funding organizations, is going to occur in the next two or three years, it needs to occur in the next two or three years, I'm committed to support that and, and contribute where I can. But I do think we need someone at the helm of that organization who's different, newer, has new ideas. If you don't, you're just not refreshing, right? I mean, I think that's critical. The reorg at the CMF really became, as a result of two very strong individuals, uh, Kelly Rome, who went back into government, and Sandra Collins, who's been with, with us for 15 years, who, who's going to go out and do other things with her life. God bless her. And, I, and she's going to Portugal, I think. I really envy her today. But so suddenly, you know, rather than fill those boxes and because of all the change that we anticipate is coming, I talked with the board and said, look, I really want to take some time to step back and really think about this because the structure we had with the a few changes over the years was really built by the when I was first hired, the chair of the board and myself kind of set up that basic structure. Well, that's 16 years ago, and I can't be blathering on about change if I don't look internally towards change. So I, I took apart the organization, and I tried really hard to take all the people out of it and really think about what are the priorities. Well, the priorities are this legislative change. The priorities are interactive digital media. The priorities are whatever happens with the French market. We've tended to treat the French market and the English market with the same paintbrush, and I think it's time to just take a look at that. The priorities are, are, do we have the right financing tools? What are they? The priorities are data. The priorities are public promotion. You know, we did the Made New brand. And when you asked about, you know, systemic racism, the second iteration of that was Seek More, which we highlighted six really compelling creative artists from those communities. It was a huge, massive success. We got a the gold marketing award for ingenuity and diversity. Oh, for that. That like, a, that that's like, great. that's like getting the Oscar, exactly. you know, in that world. And it was a huge success. So the, the promotion, the branding, the YouTube channel, you know, all of the things that we do with our within our mandate, finance, develop and promote. So I looked at, I went back to the original patent letters that set up the CMF. I looked at all the board planning session notes. I looked at where we've come from and where we need to go. And then I made a list of the priorities and I set up a structure based on those. And I removed the concept of C-suite because I think chief executive is a, is a very dated term. Hard to find the right language. There was one called uh, Major Shit Disturber. I thought that was not a bad title for somebody. And, you know, most creative painter and those kind of things. Well, I like your Maverick Award. That well, was yeah, Maverick. Good. Maverick's not a bad idea. So I looked at executive vice president because my title is still CEO and president. And I thought if I can get a strong line of people who can then work with the VPs and the directors and we're going to work across the organization. You know, organizations generally have a tendency to become very siloed and very up and down. Mm -hmm. I'm breaking that down and it's hard. You know, people are used to working the way they're working. But I think what you can see in that change or if it sends any message, it's it's set up to talk about the content, how the data informs the content. Of course, we have a big financial fiduciary responsibility for reporting. That's finance and analytics are not just finance, it's analytics and strategic initiatives around that whole piece. The content piece, we're going to separate out, have a director for French and a director for IDM. And the English market director, which will include the international export piece, because that's huge in what we're, where we're trying to get to. And then, of course, growth and inclusion 
is a part of our marketing public facing promotion because it really is about growth and inclusion. And that's a high priority for us. I was going to set it up as a separate department, but Matt, you in a really compelling case. said, look, I am a white male, but I'm gay and my partner's racialized and our children are racialized and I want to make this work for the organization. And then I talked to Tamara, who who kind of runs the sector development program, and, and she said, I, I don't care. I just want to do the job. I don't care who I report to. So I think it's going to work really well there. You know, it's a critical imperative for us to get right over the next few years. So, you know, we'll see where it goes. It's not going to be easy. Like, there's a lot of moving parts in there, but I have confidence in the team. We've got deep experience in that organization. And I tried, because we're so small, you know, and we got like 38 people, I think, internally, it's hard to find growth opportunities for people. So yeah, I could have hired in, and we are hiring in certainly. The, the EVP for finance and analytics is new. That's Sandra's, well, it's a different job, but it was Sandra was doing that. Some of the directors are new, but you know, essentially I had two very strong people mm-hmm. in, in Natalie and Matthew, and I thought, let's give them a shot and have them run with it. And that's where we are right now, is you know, the remodeling internally. It's fun frustrating, and it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see how it unfolds. I think it also sounds very promising, Yeah, personally. I hope so. All right, Valerie, this is my last question. Okay. Promise. What have I forgotten to ask you, and what do you absolutely want to make sure that our cart.ca podcast listeners take away from this conversation today? Thank you for God to ask me anything. I'm sure I'll think of it the minute you leave. But what I'd like your listeners to take away is to remember no matter what your views, we are in such a time of disruption. It's really important to stay open, to be as flexible as we can, and to not operate out of fear. I think that's that's the thing I encounter all the time is people are so afraid. It's like the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Well, that could be true, but I'm not afraid of the devil, I guess, at the end of the day. And I think we have to be open. I guess I, I believe so strongly in what we create out of this country. We have to be cautious not to hold on so tight to what's been there before that we think it's the only way, because it's not. And it's all of our jobs, I think, to embrace the change and disruption as hard as that is. Look what they're trying to do with the bill. You can't legislate disruption. It's pretty tough or chaos or change. And that these are just the times we're living. And of course, COVID didn't help all that because we feel so disconnected from each other. I mean, AQPM was the first market in the French community where people saw each other again. Yeah. The energy was unbelievable. And if you think you can harness that kind of energy towards change that is not based on fear, but is based on a mindset of expansion, we'll get there. Valerie, you are a champion. Thank you so much, Valerie Creighton, President and CEO of the Canada Media Fund for joining us today. I know how very busy you and your team are, and it was a privilege to catch up with you. And personally, it was a real delight to reconnect. Nice to see you again, too, Bill. I'm Bill Roberts. This has been a cart.ca podcast. Until next time, cheers.